Well, I want you to picture yourself back in class, whether it's high school or college, and just think, where did you sit? Were you a front row student, eager to learn, ready to engage in class, or did you kind of stick to the back row, maybe more of an introvert, wanted to fly under the radar, not get any attention? Where, where did you land? And for me, if, if you can guess, I was always in the back. I was always in the back. I didn't want to engage at all. I was the type where I was just like, you know, just give me the book. I'll take it home. I'll learn it by myself. I'm, I'm good here. And along those lines, I never raised my hand to ask questions in class. If I didn't understand something, I'd just figure it out later by myself. I didn't want to draw attention to myself, especially in college. Some of these engineering classes would have 500 people in the class. So what's the point of raising your hand anyway, really? If I wanted to learn something, I'd go to office hours maybe, but that's about it. At the same time, though, I was always thankful when other people asked questions because I often had the same question I just didn't want to ask, or at least I would benefit from the answer. And here we are today finishing up these question and answer messages on Sunday mornings where many of you submitted Bible questions to me in advance to answer. And you didn't even have to raise your hands, just had to submit in a piece of paper a month ago or so. Even still, I know that some of you are like how I was, Meaning you're shy, maybe you keep to yourself, and you just, you would, you'd never ask a question. But even if you didn't participate in asking questions, I hope and trust that you'd still benefit in hearing the answers together. And that's really part of the hidden value of these Q&A times, is that I almost always find that more than one person has that same question, and maybe just they didn't want to ask. And at the very least, we can all benefit from hearing the answers together. So that's what we've been up to. And you know, it's good to ask questions as well. The Bible is a big book, and especially for newer Christians or those who might be less equipped. You know, it's not always so easy to just pick it up and find good answers to very difficult or challenging questions. Now, I believe you you should ask and and seek for yourself. You should take the book home and, and study yourself, so to speak, but... Sometimes it's helpful to have someone present the word to you and and answer some questions for you. And that's what we're going to continue doing this morning. So for a couple weeks, we've been answering some of the questions you've submitted, trying to be informed and edified by the answers. We've got a few left for today, so we're going to just make our way through them, and I trust we'll get through all of them in time. Now, not on purpose, it's just worked out each week that I've led off with a question that's been asked by one of our youths, And that unintentional trend continues today. So here's a question that's been asked by one of our our young people. But I'm sure many of you have wondered the same thing. So we'll just begin. We'll start with this first question for today. Question number one. How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Bible is true? Good question. Yes, Christians, do you believe the Bible? I trust you believe it's God's word. It's, It's authoritative. It's entirely true. At the same time, there's so much pressure among the world to deny the Bible. There's so many attacks against it that it's just myth, it's legend, it, you know, it, it contradicts science. It's all just made up anyway. And this leads some Christians to doubt, wondering, you know, is the Bible really true? Many have had these thoughts, but they're afraid to, to say anything or to ask because it would be tantamount to admitting that, that they're doubting and they don't want to do that. But let me tell you, it's okay to have these questions. You're going to be confronted by other worldviews eventually, and they're going to challenge your beliefs and perhaps even tempt you to doubt what you believe. Better you should ask yourself. 
and figure out first for yourself what is true. So this is not something to be guilty of over or, or guilty over per se. I'd rather tell you just if you have such questions, do something about it. Don't get discouraged. Get answers to prayerfully seek and search for the truth. You should. And for now, though, I'm going to help you with that regarding the Bible itself. How do we know that the Bible is true? The Bible makes a claim of inspiration, which means ultimately that its author is God, that it has a divine author behind it all. Over 4,000 times the Bible claims to be God's words. So it clearly has the claim of divine authorship, ultimately. How can we know these claims are true? What kind of evidence is there to back up these claims? Well, first I want to say this, that the job of convincing someone that the Bible is God's word ultimately belongs to the Holy Spirit. No amount of evidence will ever be enough to change someone's mind and convince them apart from the work of the Spirit in their lives. Only the Spirit can give sight to the blind, raise the dead to new life, to to cause them to see the Bible for what it really is, namely the Word of God. And so we ultimately trust the Spirit to work as He wills. That being said, though, there, there still is a role for evidence in the Christian faith. Although we don't believe ultimately because of evidence, Still, you know, if the Christian faith is true, we would expect that all the evidence would correspond to it, right? And really, that goes for the Bible. I mean, if it really is the Word of God, well, we would expect that there would be several lines of evidence that support that claim, that demonstrate that notion. And that indeed is what we find. So this is where the the real benefit of looking at evidences comes in. Sometimes the Spirit uses evidences like a bulldozer to to clear away roadblocks toward belief in the minds of an unbeliever. And other times, for for those who already believe, their faith can be made stronger by seeing how how reasonable the faith is, that it, it fits all evidence, it doesn't contradict all evidence. So with this right understanding of the place and the value of evidence in mind, the priority of the work of the Spirit... We can look at some of these confirming evidences to be encouraged to know that the Bible makes these claims, we believe it, and it it accords with with all we know. So let me give you some of these confirming evidences that the Bible is true. First one, the evidence of transformed lives. The evidence of transformed lives. One way you know the Bible is true is because if you're here, you're a believer, you, you should have experienced its life-changing claims. It promises to change lives, and I trust you've experienced that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The gospel promises to radically change people's lives. And that claim, that's, that's confirmed by countless personal testimonies. It really changes lives. I myself can attest to this claim. Back in college, before I was a Christian, joined a fraternity, got into heavy drinking, worldliness, all that stuff. But thankfully, it didn't take long. God confronted me with the gospel. Someone shared the gospel with me. And as I came to faith in Christ, by his grace, literally overnight, I turned away from all those sins and just changed. And countless other aspects of my life changed. 
My desires changed. My goals changed. My priorities changed. My whole worldview changed just overnight because of the truth. The world today has especially given up on, on actually helping people change. Instead, you know, people, people can't really change. So, you know, they're just medicated or maybe they're given a, a label like you have this syndrome and that's just how you are and so be it. Maybe here's some drugs to help, you know, manage your syndrome, but you can't really change. And so the, the drug addict, the alcoholic, the adulterer, the mentally ill, they, they can't really change. They're just they're going to be the way they are and we can just mitigate it. But that's just how it is. But there are countless testimonies of people who they've had real problems, but they've encountered the gospel and the, the power of this message to change lives. And as they submit their lives to it, everything changes, powerfully changes. There's no explanation for it, but the truth. And I bet that testimony includes many of you here. Now, it's true. This is subjective evidence, so it only goes so far. Personal experience, it can be false. It can be misleading. So we're not saying this is some chief evidence of the Bible, but it's still valid as real evidence, right? I mean, if the Bible really is the word of God and it claims to change lives, it well, it should change many people's lives. And so at the very least, it, it does what it claims to do in this case. It's consistent and really the testimony of millions confirms it has life-changing power. And really, there, there's no book, no historical or religious text has shaped and changed world history as much as the Bible. And so the evidence of trans, uh, transformed lives stands out. Secondly, the evidence of the unity of the Bible. The evidence of the unity of the Bible. The, the testimony of God's handiwork in the Bible. It's also evidenced by its amazing composition and unity. It's unlike any other book or even religious text in all history. This is one book, yet it's composed of 66 books with 40 authors writing in three languages on three different continents over 1,500 years. And the topics are limitless. They run the, the full gamut of theology. Yet the Bible presents this completely unified picture of God, man, sin, salvation, and, and so on. That the unity among the diversity is profound. Also consider just the diverse backgrounds of, of all the authors. You've got a prince, a shepherd, a king, a priest, a prophet, a tax collector, a Pharisee, a doctor, several fishermen, and more. Most of them wrote completely independent from one another, again, stretched over 1,500 years, yet they wrote this book that has this profound unity, even though it's so deep in its searchings of God and man. And the unity of the Bible is compelling evidence that there, there's a greater author at work, that, that mankind could not have orchestrated something like this over time. I mean, just imagine, you gather 40 people together to write this epic long story, you know, a couple thousand pages. But they don't know the overall theme. They don't know what the whole thing is about. They're not allowed to meet together. They're not given an outline. They have no blueprint. They just really show up and give their little contribution, knowing maybe a few things of what's written before, and that's it. And so what are the chances of them writing this profound, compelling, unified work? And, and they have to write over 1,500 years, by the way, all scattered and separated. 
There's, there's no chance. Again, this is just another little piece of evidence that the Bible is God's word, especially when contrasted with all the other religious texts. They're all the same. It's, it's one author, one time, one place. That's it. The Bible really stands out. Third, I'll mention the evidence of archaeology. The evidence of archaeology. The Bible is not merely a historical book, but it is historical. It contains countless references to historical persons, places, events, things. And if the Bible is the word of God, then it should get all of these historical references right, right? But if the Bible is filled with countless historical errors, that's really going to argue against its inspiration that it really came from God. God can't err. If it really is filled with all these historical errors, that, that would be a problem. Well, especially in the past 200 years, liberal skeptics, they've loved the claim that the Bible is full of these historical errors. But with each passing year and each new archaeological discovery, every time the Bible's amazing truthfulness is, is only confirmed. Countless archaeological discoveries, they've done nothing but confirm the version of history as found in the Bible. Not a single person, place, or event has been disproved by archaeology, only confirmed. And even and now, really, even those who don't believe in the Bible, they're forced to admit it tells real history. These are real persons and places and events. It's confirmed even outside the Bible. And here you can do your own internet search of biblical archaeology. You'll find just endless examples of how archaeology has only supported the version of events in Scripture. I'll give you one notable example you know, up to 100 years ago, outside of the Bible, no one had ever heard of the Hittites, the people group known as the Hittites. No, no, no record of them anywhere except the Bible. Genesis 23 mentions that Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the tomb belonging to a Hittite man. And also, remember David Bathsheba? Bathsheba's husband was Uriah the Hittite. So there's these random references to the, these people, this people group in Scripture, but there's no evidence of them. And so for the longest time, scholars and, and critics and skeptics contended that you know they never existed. This people group never existed. It's just part of biblical mythology. It's it's made up. That was until 1906 when an archaeologist in Turkey found the ancient capital of the Hittite. Empire, as well as thousands of documents showing that this was actually a, a flourishing civilization in biblical times. And so all of the skeptics were forced to retract all of their claims. And this happens like every year, every time there's a new dig, it only confirms the Bible. There's no contradiction. Again, the list really goes on. So look, do some of your own research. You'll see how profoundly archaeology just continues to support what scripture says. Again, when you look at the evidence, it confirms. It does not deny it, and that, that encourages us. I'll give you one more. Even though there's many more places you could go, just kind of a summary here. The evidence of fulfilled prophecy. And pay attention to this one, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Because not only is the Bible a historical book, it makes truth claims about the past. It's also a prophetic book. It makes truth claims about the future, things that will come to pass. And it's really unique in this regard. Even other religious texts, they're not filled with prophecy. The Bible is 
Some say a third or quarter of it is prophecy. Nothing's like that. That's that's risky. If you're gonna you know try and make up a religious work, you don't load it with that much prophecy because if it if they start to get proven wrong, it, the whole thing falls apart. And yet the Bible is like a quarter of it is prophecy, and it really invites scrutiny because if these prophecies aren't true, if they don't come true, well the Bible could not have come from God. It'd be a big problem. But this is where again the Bible really stands out for it can claim a long list of prophecies that have already been fulfilled ancient times yet spanning hundreds of years. Again, I'm just summarizing so I'll point you to do your own search. You'll find a long list even just with Christ and his first coming. There's 365 prophecies that from the Old Testament to his coming that were fulfilled literally even though they were written between 500 and 1500 years. Before he came. Now here I could give you a long list of quick examples, but for time, I'm just going to give you one big example, one powerful example of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. Probably one of my favorites, Daniel 9:25. I'll just read it for you from the Old Testament. Daniel makes a absolutely precise prediction of the the timing of the coming of Israel's Messiah. And he's writing 530 years before Christ, by the way. So let me read Daniel 9:25. He says, So then, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And I'll explain all this. At this time, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Judah, southern empire, had been exiled. Remember that? They were all was lost. Temple destroyed. But they had been allowed to come back. They were going to rebuild and and, get things going back again. And Daniel prophesies that from the time of this decree to, to do what? To rebuild Jerusalem. From that time onward until the Messiah came, and that was Israel's hope, the Messiah who would come and, and change things. He says there's going to be basically 69 weeks total. 69 weeks. And at that time, the Messiah will come, and verse 24, the verse, the verse before it said, what, what's the Messiah going to do? Well, among other things, he's going to make an end of sin and he's going to make atonement for iniquity. This Messiah is going to deal with our sin problem. It's already pretty profound. Now we learn elsewhere that these weeks refer to seven years. So one week equals seven years. That's, that's pretty easy to, to figure out, okay? So after this specific time, the Messiah will come. Now, here's the amazing part. So we have, we have a countdown timer, and it begins when? Again, with this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. When is that decree, when does it happen? It's actually recorded in Nehemiah 2 by the Persian king Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. And here we can actually compare with historical records, and we can even pinpoint the exact date of this decree, which was March 5th, 444 B.C. March 5th, 444. So from this date, you travel these 69 prophetic weeks, the Messiah is supposed to show up. Now I'll give you a quick number crunching. 69 weeks, where each week is seven years, so that's 483 years, right? 69 times seven. 483 years. Keep in mind, though, the Jews used a solar calendar of 360 days in a year, and they had leap months. So you take into account, though, we're dealing with a Jewish calendar. And so you start counting March 5th, 444 B.C., 
And you go forward through these 483 Jewish years, and what date do you arrive at at the end? March 30th, A.D. 33. That's Nisan 10 in the Jewish calendar, A.D. 33. That's also the day of what? It's the exact day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's the exact day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's stunning. And, and if you want the handout, I'll give you the handout. You can, you can do the study for yourself. It's, it's in Scripture. It's really just scratching the surface of the monumental weight of biblical prophecy. <laughs> that there's no plan around here. It only confirms the Bible. God's the one who declares the end from the beginning, and prophecy stands out proving he does, and this is his word. Well, this is just a small sampling of, of the vast amount of evidence there is supporting Scripture as God's word. This evidence has all been left behind. It's like the fingerprints of God on Scripture, showing it's, it's a divine book. The Bible really is God's word and will for mankind. At the end of the day, though, I want to make sure you remember, however, don't forget, even with all this evidence, that the word of the cross, it's still foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, right? It's, it's all, it's, even with all this evidence, it's still foolishness to the world. The Bible makes no sense to them. Only to those who are being saved is it the power of God. So who will believe and be convinced by all this? Only in those, Only those in whom the Spirit works. And the Spirit works through what? The gospel. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said that as he shows up to preach and preach to them, he did not come in persuasive words of wisdom, rather, but in in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Because God is pleased to save those who believe through what? Through the foolishness of the message preached. He just came and preached the gospel. And the Spirit moved those whom he moved. It's the gospel that saves and ultimately changes minds. You see, like the truth of the Bible, it is rational. It is reasonable. It makes sense. It has tons of evidence. But who's going to believe our report? Well, not the natural man. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they're spiritually appraised and their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. It says in 2.14, Don't forget that basic truth. And therefore, don't forget the gospel and all that you do. Don't forsake the gospel. Remember, that's where God has placed his real power to convince people to change lives and hearts and minds and wills. It's in the message of Christ and the cross, of the Savior who has come, this long-awaited Savior who has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for all of your sins, and then rose from the dead, proving his victory, offering you forgiveness and new life if you go to him by faith. Remember that message. So go ahead, give people evidence, sure, but also always give them the gospel. That's what God will use to to change lives. Okay, we'll leave that question there. That's number one. Let's, Let's keep moving here, try and get through a few more. Question number two, switching gears. Question number two, how did God overlook the sins of past generations or the times of ignorance? How did God overlook the times of ignorance? 
This question comes from a specific verse, Acts 17, verse 30. So you can turn now, if you want to follow along, you can turn your Bibles to Acts 17. So the question is, what does it mean when it says God overlooked times of ignorance? So as you're turning, Acts 17, you've got Paul preaching to these pagans in Athens. And he notices how these Greeks, they're so religious. They worship hundreds of gods, even an unknown god. And so he says in 1723, he says to them, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. See, Paul knew they worshiped in ignorance. They didn't know the one true God. They did not know who they were worshiping. They associated God with these little wooden idols. But it's not man that makes God. It's God that makes man. And so Paul preaches the truth of the one true God to them. And he says in verse 29, Being then the children of God, meaning we're made in his image, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Basically he's saying, you know, we don't make God in our image. He made us in his image. And then he says, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, so this question concerns that phrase back in verse 30, which says, you know, God overlooked the times of ignorance. So, what does that mean? How do you explain that? Well, first, you have to ask, according to this passage, what is God doing now that he wasn't doing in that previous era? And verse 30 tells us, God is now, what? Declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Before, during these times of ignorance, he wasn't doing that. Now, of course, all people needed to repent, But the point is, God, he sent them no messenger. He gave them no special witness. Rather, he let them just go their own way. That's what is meant by this word overlook. This is a unique word in the Greek used only here. And it means to not see something or to act as if you didn't see something. And so God was overlooking these nations, meaning he made no move to punish them. They were in sin, but... He he basically didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. He let them go their own way and continue. Now, does this mean God was sweeping their sin under the rug or that they weren't guilty? No, of course not. It's very clear. Romans chapter 1, that all the nations are without excuse and still held accountable to the revelation of creation, general revelation. All are without excuse for knowing and worshiping the one true God. However, people are held accountable to the light which they have received. And these pagan nations, they've received general revelation, but not special revelation. God gave them no prophets, no messengers, no law. He gave them nothing except the revelation of of creation. Now, that's enough to, to know who God is in a basic sense. 
But because of this, God chose to show these nations a form of mercy and forbearance and tolerance, meaning he allowed them to to go their own way, to persist in their rebellion. Even though they turned to idol worship, God did not call them into national judgment at that time, just generally speaking. And really, this is, this is exactly like Paul said earlier in Acts 14, verses 16 and 17, which says, he said, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's the same thing, God... Uh, tells us that the nations, they're still without excuse, for they had the witness of creation and nature telling them that God exists. He's a good and powerful God. But the point is, the time had not come for the fullness of God's plan to reach the nations. That's the point. The time had not come for that plan. However, with the coming of Christ, that time has come. God's plan for the nations has come. And so with Christ comes the phrase called the fullness of the times. The, the fullness of God's revelation to mankind comes with Christ, right? And so the times of ignorance, they're over as the light of the gospel dawns on new lands. And so what they were worshiping in ignorance, Paul was declaring to them. And understand, this explains the difference in the mission between Israel and the church, Do you know the difference between Israel's mission and the church's mission? In the Old Testament, God called Israel to be his holy nation, a light to the nations, but their mission was to stay. They were planted in a little plot of land in the Holy Land, and they were to stay put, go nowhere, stay in this land. They were not called to reach and go out into all the pagan nations around them, but to let the light shine from within. But now with the church, though, being equipped with the full and complete gospel of Christ, we are not called to stay, we're called to go. Go where? Into all the earth to make disciples of all the nations now, calling them to repent and believe in Christ. This is why when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, he was described as, as what? A light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is the dawning of a new age. God's plan for all the nations, not just one nation, Israel. Now is the dawn of his plan of redemption, including all the nations in the church. And so the days of the world's ignorance are over. The truth is no longer limited to the nation of Israel. Now God is calling all the nations everywhere to repent as we go forth into the nations to make disciples. And this mission is all the more important because that day of judgment is coming, right? The, the days of God's forbearance and patience, they, they don't last forever. But verse 31 says, God, he's already fixed a day in which he's going to judge all the nations in righteousness. And all the nations need to hear the good news before that time. And, and this is our mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so in all here, the main point is what? Well, repent and believe now, today,
before that day comes. The day's fixed. It's, it's coming. The gospel's here, though. Repent. Believe in Christ. Turn from your sins and your ignorance and your wicked ways and cast yourself on Christ and, and, and hope for he's the one who, who can save you from your sins and that wrath to come and give you new life and peace and an everlasting hope and country. Christ's authority over life and death was proved when he rose from the dead, so go to him to find this eternal life. And all then, Paul's preaching here in Acts 17, it's really just giving us a special window into God's plan of redemption before Christ and after Christ, right? B.C. and and A.D. And here we are now as the church, we're after Christ. And so we, as the church, we're called to participate in his plan for the nation's by just going, going to your neighborhood, go to your neighbors, go down the street, go to Africa, go around the world, just go and take the gospel to call all people everywhere to repent and believe before the day comes. The times of ignorance end as we bring the light of Christ into dark places, and we need to do that. The day is fixed, and it's only getting closer. So a call to us to be about the business of the gospel. Question number three. It's a quick shift of gears. That's, that comes with the territory at these Q&A sermons. Question number three. What happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection? What happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection? We love to wonder about all aspects of Christ's life and mission, especially the places where it just doesn't really say, like, what was Jesus doing during his youth? We've got, you know, roughly 30 years not recorded. Like, what was he doing? Is he walking around on water everywhere or not? Like, what, what was he doing? We don't know. And similarly, a lot of people want to know what was he doing between the cross and the resurrection. And this is a place where the Bible doesn't explicitly lay out too much. We're not given, like, his itinerary in between the cross and the resurrection. We're kind of left to speculation. And so we wonder about these things. The Bible gives us many clues, though, so we can, we can say a few things. First, we know what happened to his body. His body went to the grave. The human nature of Jesus, his human body, went to the grave and to the tomb. We know that. Of course, obviously, this person is really wondering what happened to the spirit of Jesus in between his death and resurrection. Remember, the definition of physical death is not going out of existence, but it, it's separation. Separation of body and spirit. The body returns to dust from which it was made, awaiting uh, awaiting resurrection. But the spirit lives on either with the Lord or away from the Lord in hell. And speaking of, some people believe that after the cross, the spirit of Jesus went to hell. More specifically, some actually teach that, uh, that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough. But he had to die spiritually in hell and then be born again. So in other words, they teach that atonement for sins didn't really take place on the cross. It took place in hell. That's where the spirit of Jesus went. There he was completely forsaken by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Some even teach that he lost his divinity and he was made to suffer by Satan in hell for our sins. He had to be rescued by God the Father, though, at which point he was born again. Now, this may sound bizarre, 
it is bizarre. It's a very false teaching that primarily comes out of the Word of Faith movement. It's really a staple of the Word of Faith movement. You'll hear it regularly by the likes of Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Bill Johnson, Benny Hinn, the list goes on. If it sounds familiar to you, though, that's because actually back in our 2016 Q&A, someone asked that question specifically. So at this point, I'm going to reference you on our website back to Q&A 2016, part two. You'll hear the, the full just refutation of the false notion that Jesus made atonement by suffering in hell. It's very false. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Now, that being said, some evangelical Christians, they still believe that Jesus went to hell between the cross and resurrection. Not to suffer, not to pay for sins, but to preach victory over the enemies of God. Some people believe that. Especially those who give heed to the Apostles' Creed. That's like an early doctrinal statement of the early church. And it is true that in the Apostles' Creed it says that Jesus died, was buried, and then descended into hell. It's part of the Apostles' Creed. In reality, though, that little phrase, descended into hell, it actually didn't even show up in the Apostles' Creed until the 7th century. So it's not that ancient. And furthermore, we really we care about what the Bible says, not so much what a creed says. The Scripture never says or suggests that Jesus went to Gehenna, hell, the place of punishment after the cross. There are a few verses, uh, speaking of Jesus going to Sheol, that's, that's really just referring to going to the grave, dying. Now, I do believe that on the cross, Jesus suffered the equivalent of hell, namely God's wrath poured out in full. I think we know that. That's what he was doing on the cross. But the Bible doesn't teach that he went to Gehenna or hell for three days after the cross, before resurrection, doing something there, waiting. On the, on the contrary, on the cross, what did Jesus say? He said, it is finished. So whatever he was doing, that work was done on the cross. He also told the thief, remember, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a good clue, right? Then at the end, he told the father, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Another clue. We know his body would go to the grave, but it seems clear that Jesus himself fully expected his spirit to be welcomed back into heaven, back into the Father's presence upon death. And that is where his spirit went after death, before resurrection, to heaven. I think the book of Hebrews confirms this. You may have noticed we've been actually seeing some of these passages lately in Hebrews 9 and 10 about Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus initiated this new and perfect day of atonement. Remember, we're on the cross He was our ultimate sacrificial lamb, taking away all of our sins by his perfect blood. And Hebrews also teaches that Christ, as our perfect high priest, like the high priest on the Day of Atonement, who would take the the sacrificial blood into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, to present that blood to make atonement for sins, which Hebrews teaches Jesus did the same thing. He entered the heavenly holy of holies, with his own perfect blood, entering the very presence of God himself to put away sins forever. Remember Hebrews 9.24? It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus is pictured as presenting his blood, his finished work, before the Father, after the cross, as an offering for sin. And God accepted the offering, and his wrath toward our sins was turned away forever. And I think this connection only reinforces the idea that the Spirit of Jesus went to heaven, not to hell, after the cross, before resurrection. Some may contend that Jesus made a little pit stop in Sheol, the place of the dead, to preach victory over God's enemies, like before he went to heaven. And that may be true. Some people make a little case for that. But I think we can know for certain that he entered the presence of God in heaven as our perfect high priest. And in all, it's really an encouraging thought when you think about it, because that's where Jesus still is. After the ascension, that's, that's where he still is on our behalf. He still is that perfect high priest interceding for us before the Father, guarding his people, guiding his people into truth, into eternal life, that we may one day join him there. And that really is our future hope. What happened to him after death, after resurrection, that that forms our hope that because of him and in him, we don't have to fear the grave. We know our bodies will return to dust. But we don't care. We know our spirit will be uh, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. And so as we think of him, we can look forward to our hope, our heavenly hope, and that better country. Let's finish now. One last question, question number four for this morning. This was the question that got kicked out of last week for the sake of time. But we'll, we'll come back and we'll finish it now. Question number four. It says, can you elaborate on the meaning of John 17:21 and its implications? So it's very specific. You, you had better turn to John 17. But can you elaborate on the meaning of John 17:21? So let's, let's turn to John 17. This is Christ's high priestly prayer on the night before his death. And this person further added that they're wondering more about the nature of Christ's prayer and, and really if it's been fulfilled or not. Has this been fulfilled? Jesus prays for his disciples. And then in verse 20, he prays for those who believe in me through their word. In other words, he starts to pray for all of his future disciples, i.e. the church or, or us. He prays for us. Verse 21, then, is the content of his prayer for the future church. And this is what he says. John 17, verse 21. He prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the question is, just to elaborate on this, explain it. That's part one. First, he prays that they may all be one. This is, a, I think, a clear prayer of the, for the unity of the church, that they would be one with one another. Second, he prays, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This may sound a little more mysterious, but really he's just praying for the unity of the church with God. So the content of his prayer for the church, it's all about unity. Unity of the church with one another horizontally, and then unity of the church with God vertically. So prayer for unity. And then lastly comes the purpose clause of the prayer. Verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
And so the unity of the church with God and the unity of the church with one another has this added benefit of being a powerful witness to the world. So that's, that's the nature of Christ's high priestly prayer for the church. He adds down in verse 23, he says that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, I think what this person really wanted to know, though, that the bigger part of the question is, has this prayer, this is Jesus praying for the future church, for, for unity. They really want to know, has this been fulfilled yet or not? And the answer is, do you know the answer? You think it's been fulfilled or not? The answer is yes. This prayer has been answered and fulfilled. When? At Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Understand that when the Spirit came, this prayer for the unity of the church was fundamentally answered and established. It's kind of like we learned last week from 1 Corinthians 12. One of the chief functions of the coming of the Spirit was to establish the oneness of the body of Christ. Although there are many members, there's one body, and we've all been baptized into the one body by the one Spirit. The Spirit establishes the unity of the church, our unity with one another. And the Spirit also establishes our unity with God. Christians are often described in the New Testament as those who are in Christ. We've been united with Christ. But really, it's, it's the Holy Spirit who brings that about. Remember, Jesus made all these promises of how he and the Father would abide with us and in us. Like John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. It's pretty stunning when you think about it, the Father and the Son promising to abide and to dwell with every believer. That's, that's kind of staggering. How is that going to be achieved? Well, it's through the Spirit, as Christ continues to teach in these same chapters. The Spirit is the one who affects our union with the triune God. And so it's no wonder that 2 Corinthians 6, 16 calls us, the church, the temple of the living God that we now are the dwelling place of God, his spirit. God himself dwells in us via the spirit. And this in turn serves as a powerful witness to the world. Because what does sin do? Sin divides people. That's all it does. It just divides people over and over again. All history, the world in sin is no nothing but division, racial division, national division, socioeconomic division, all of history has been characterized by strife and hatred and racism and prejudice, and it goes on. But in the, in the true church, there is this profound and supernatural unity among true believers, that there's a oneness that bears testimony to the power of the Spirit and the reality of, of Christ and his work that, like we talked before, that the power of transformed lives, this, this gospel, this word can really change people and even bring together Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female. All those who are separate and different in the world can be truly one in the church. The world strives for this unity. It's superficial, it's false, and they will never get there. Only in the church is there a real oneness. So is the church one like Jesus prayed? 
Yes. Yes. In position. Yes. We are one in Christ. We are one with Christ through the spirit that dwells in all true believers. So that's why I say Christ's prayer was established right when the spirit came. Now, that being said, just to finish, though, I should also mention, though, that since we're still sinners, we sure can hinder the expression of that unity. We are one in Christ. That's just that's it. We're one in Christ. But uh, since we're sinners, we can hinder the expression of that unity. This is why we're called to Ephesians 4 verses 2 through 6 with all humility and gentleness, with patience to show tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, we have the unity of the spirit. We're called to preserve it. And he says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And so since we're still sinners, we're called to walk by the spirit, which includes setting aside sin and self so as to preserve the unity of the spirit. And this is a big way we let the light of Christ shine. You know, in heaven, when we're glorified, all sin is removed. We will enjoy nothing but perfect unity with God, with one another. But for now, we would say then that Christ's prayer for the unity of the church, it's like our salvation. It's already and not yet. Already and not yet. It's, it's already answered. It's fulfilled. We are one in Christ via the Spirit. But it's not yet fully experienced by us here on earth. Knowing this then should really just inspire us and encourage us to take seriously the identity and the mission of the church. That we are one body and we are supposed to showcase our unity that the world may see the power of Christ. You know, we reflected earlier on the mission of the church to take the gospel to all the nations to show them peace. That, that the nations, talk about the biggest difference, all can come together as, as one redeemed in Christ. But if your own life or if us as a church, if we're characterized by our own sin and division and strife, why would anyone want our so-called good news that, that makes them one if, if we can't even display that ourselves? So just think about your lives. Think about your relationships. In your own life, are you a peacemaker or a peacebreaker? Do you showcase how the gospel reconciles differences just in your own life? How it saves marriages? how it restores children, how it heals the brokenhearted, how it brings enemies together. Right? Make sure just in your own life that this is a part of your testimony to the world and then us as a church all together. Take seriously this call in your life to, to strive, to really strive against all the sin that divides us and then to pursue unity with all. This is how, this is one big way the world will know that Jesus, he is Lord. And as we bring the gospel to the nations, they'll, they'll see the power of it behind us that, wow, that they really have peace. These people have peace, peace with God, peace with one another. And so let's strive to live like Jesus said, that you love one another, John 13. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he said, by this, 
all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He came as the love of God to, to show us the love of God, and we need to, to model and live in that love and to glorify him and that the world would know the gospel is peace. So that's, a, I think, a fitting way to end, a fitting reminder for us as a church. Let's take up this mission and strive to be at peace with all and to preserve this unity of the Spirit to the glory of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord in heaven, we, we thank you for this morning, our time together, and the gospel, the gospel that brings peace, that has really woven throughout these questions. These Q&As can, can kind of be all over the place, but your word is true and sure. And, and as we've highlighted the gospel this morning, may that be a, a fitting way for us to end and remember your goodness in, in sending Christ into the world and offering us a message of peace and hope and reconciliation. We all lived in times of ignorance and our own sins and waywardness. We thank you for your, your patience and your tolerance with us as sinners, drawing us to yourself. Lord, you'd be just to wipe us all off the face of the planet right away. Yet in mercy, you allow sinners to persist that some might come to salvation. And that would include us. So we, we just praise you for that, Lord. And the fullness of times has come. You've sent Christ, the Savior, into the world to die and to rise again for the forgiveness of our sins and to make us new. And so I pray now we, we really remember we've been called with a purpose. And we've been put together into this church for a reason. You call us to gather, Lord, not just to, to huddle up or have a social club or, or feel good about ourselves for the sake of religious guilt. No, Lord, we have, even as a local church, we have purpose and mission. That's to glorify you by living together, enjoying the unity of the Spirit, yet also letting the light shine here and, and really all over the world. And so may we leave with just renewed interest in, in being about the gospel. We are not called to stay and to be comfortable, but to go and to let the light shine everywhere, to preach Christ and to back that up by lives that showcase peace, peace with God, peace with one another. So just remind us in these things, Lord, encourage us and invigorate us to be men and women about your gospel, the good news which we've received, and we give, thank you, uh, we give thanks for that, Lord. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen.